Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, I'm doing fine. Um, uh, another lovely uh, spring day in uh, uh, the greater Richmond area. I was going to say in the RVA. Yes. Um, so we're doing our commission series, and yes. I think there's a thing we cannot leave out, and that is money, the Benjamins, monetary, <laughs> monetary policy. Um, because the jack, the coin, the dinero. Ex exactly, okay. the Bitcoin now. Um, <laughs> apparently that's the hot thing. Yes, right. Yeah, everybody keeps saying you can invest in Bitcoin. I was like, I can't afford to invest in Bitcoin. Apparently a Bitcoin costs you like $80 million or something. I don't know. It's yeah, I mean, I get asked that question and I'm like... <laughs> you know i work I, for the public right like i don't yeah, have I, one i work for the government and two okay uh i struggle to go ahead and keep current with my ira my individual <laughs> retirement account right you're asking me to go ahead and, and uh and spend valuable intellectual capital okay uh on a on a currency um that one i'm not entirely sure okay what it is Okay. Exactly how it works. <laughs> yeah, right? Like I don't really understand it because I barely understand fiat currency as it currently exists, let alone yeah. sort of the Elon Musk pretend currency that is big. It's not pretend actually. It's quite now it's on the there there was an open IP and a marketing stuff. Yeah, but I mean, you know, again good for them, I say. Yeah, I mean, I, I still occasionally rue the day. Um, that um, uh, we don't have a legal tender in our uh, pocketbooks and wallets, okay? Yeah. Because there, 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 there was something tangible, okay, and reassuring about being able to look into my wallet and see, you know, a couple, you know, $10 bills, right? Um, but now I have cards, Right. Right. I got plastic. Right. Yep. Okay. And now when you give people cash, sometimes they look at you like they don't know what to do. Yes. Yes. You know what I mean? And people who count the money back from the register get distressed because then they have to slowly count it into your hand to make sure they got the right amount. I get it. It's math and math is hard. Um, and it's and because so many people play pay with plastic now i imagine that cash is just sort of a foreign object like what am i doing with this thing yeah uh, yeah yeah but uh and but, but, women but, but, everywhere will hear me when i say i i i rue that there is no more mad money so what used to happen is that your mom if you were a, a mostly young women i think maybe some young men but mostly young women you tucked a little bit of money back in your wallet and then if you didn't like him if you're out on a date and he said something rude or obnoxious or you didn't like him or her uh depending on who you were out on the date with you you could just get up and leave and the mad money was to pay for your cab ride home um or oh, no i mean you know hey uh uh or or or, or this guy's uh how about this um you know uh, 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 if you reached into a coat pocket, 
um, and you found a twenty dollar bill. Money. <laughs> yes, like magic. Oh my gosh, your jeans! You wash your jeans, and you've washed a ten dollar bill, and it's all soft and spendable. You're like, oh, thank you. The yeah, universe I mean, just gave me money. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the the rest of your day or your week. Okay, oh, could be totally could made. be terrible. Okay, but you're just like that's all right. I found you know twenty bucks. Yep. Okay, I'm good. The rest of you all can go ahead be a bunch of meanies. It doesn't matter. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So so banking, we're we're there's not one banking commission. I think that we were going to talk about. There's what three or four that we're going to talk about. Yes. Um, because. As far as I can tell, what happens, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's a cyclical sort of thing where, um, you know, there'll be a problem with money and banking and people will go, oh, this was terrible. Somebody should look into that. And there'll be a commission and they will look into it. And then we'll go along for 20 or 30 years. And then there'll be another one of these and another commission. And it just seems like it's a cycle where we're trying to actually figure out capitalism and money and banking and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, if you think about historically, Nia, uh, banking has always been uh, a fraught, contentious issue in the United States. I mean, if you think about it, right? I mean, one of, one of the, the first policy debates within our first presidential administration was between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson regarding whether or not the United States federal government had the authority, and if it had the authority, should it create a national bank? I mean, oh, think about right, it. because Hamilton was the Secretary of the Treasury, right? That's right. And Jefferson was Secretary of State, okay? Hamilton proposed a national bank, okay, that would help uh, the uh, the states pay off their debts to the British Crown because that was one of the negotiated points to end the Revolutionary War, right? Right. The British Crown was just like, okay, you guys beat us in this war, but you still but owe us money. <laughs> you still owe us money, right? You still owe us money because that was part of your charters, your contracts with the British Crown, okay. And we're not going to end this war unless you guys agree to pay your debts. Okay. So, you know, Hamilton was like, if we create a national bank, okay, and uh, the federal government, um, you know, collects revenue through the imposition of tariffs, okay, this will allow us to help the states pay off the debts. Jefferson was just like, hey, wait a minute here. Why do we need a national bank when each of the former colonies, now states, have their own banking systems, right? Let them and pay the, their own yeah, debts. Yeah, I mean, and, and Hamilton was just like, but banking can unify the country. And Jefferson was just like, yeah, but a national bank, okay, would be just as oppressive as the British crown, okay, wanting their, you know, <laughs> You know, wanting us to go ahead and, you know, pay them, you know, money every year, right? Right. You know, so banking has always been contentious, right? 
Okay, we got a landmark Supreme Court decision, McCulloch versus Maryland, which was about states trying to tax the second iteration of the National Bank, right? So this has been a contentious issue, right? I mean, we're going to talk about it in this podcast episode. Guys, as recently as the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009, okay, was in part about the role of banks. Right. The role of banks. So, so, so you are correct in saying, wow, we just can't seem to get a really good <laughs> handle on banking in the American, if you will, version of democracy slash capitalism, right? Yeah, it's complicated. That's yes. part of the problem is the yes. banking is complicated. So yes. uh, for listeners, um, the I, I don't know about Augie, but I did not go back into the 1800s because there's only so much I can, I can, there's only so much commission I can think about um, in terms of banking because we probably could have gone back to, uh, I don't know, Egyptian times when they had banking, right? If we were, if we were so inclined, but we started in the 1900s because there was this panic of 1907, which yes. was a bank, which were bank runs. We, we think of, of panics as starting, I think, at least I thought of it as starting with the Great Depression. But there had actually been a series of them in the late 1800s and early 1900s, culminating right in the 1907 sort of crazed panic um, where, and basically what happens in a panic is that people think that they're not going to be able to get their money. So they go to the bank to try to withdraw their money. And so many people do that, that the bank either has to shut down or it has to regulate the amount it's gonna give people or something else, right? Like it has to, yeah, I mean, it has to protect itself from being completely depleted. Yeah, I mean, because for the banks to make money, banks first need to have people who will deposit money into the bank, Right. okay? So, you know, let's just say, for instance, Nia, you're a thrifty person um, and you set aside, you know, $50 every pay period and you want it, want to put it in the bank, okay, um, as savings, okay, as savings, right? Now, the bank will go ahead and say, Nia, hey, thanks for your deposit. Um, and over a period of time, we might go ahead and give you a return of, you know, you know, 25% at this. Yeah. Right. Okay. (laughs) But whatever, let's, let's say we'll give you a quarter on that every, every month. We'll give you a quarter on your $50. Now the way the banks make money is then they loan it to people who, you know, want to buy a house, buy a car, start a business, et cetera, because they charge a higher interest rate. Okay. On the loan. Then they're giving me. So, They owe me a quarter, but if they lend my $50 to a person and say, you owe us a dollar each month in interest, there's 75 cents out there that the bank has made. And I know those numbers aren't correct, but there's, but, 75, but cents that the bank, okay. there's 75 cents that the bank has made and they can still give me my 25 cents. So then they have more money that they can either lend people or they can invest in other things, depending but, on what um, kind of bank they are. But a panic occurs when a whole bunch of people are like, okay, I might need to dip into my savings because 
okay, I might uh, have my pay at my job reduced, or right. I might lose my job, right? So I want to, you know, I want to dip into my savings. I need my $50.25 back. Okay. And if a whole bunch of Americans feel that way, now banks got a problem, right? Because they've already loaned out the money. Right. <laughs> and, if, and by the way, if, if the nation's economy is getting so poor that a whole bunch of Americans are going to banks to dip into their savings, chances are a whole bunch of people who borrowed money can't pay the money back. Right. The first okay. thing they do is they say, give us the money back. Yes. And those people say, I don't have it. I don't have it. Here's, right? here's my property. But the problem is the bank then has to sell that property to someone in order to get me my $50, which doesn't happen immediately. So then the bank is short, even yes. though they have, they have the property that they could take from the person who can't pay the bill, they still have to turn around and sell that property to give me my money, which takes time. It takes time, but also too, remember, if the nation's economy is so bad that a bunch of people, okay, are not paying their loans back, chances are there aren't a whole bunch of people out there waiting to go ahead and, and buy, buy those buy those distressed assets that the bank now owns. Right, <laughs> right? which is when you get speculators and you get all kinds of excuse me, all kinds of stuff like that, which is, by the way, getting way out of, yeah, like, yeah, that's yeah. way into the weeds of, because of, yeah. there's all kinds of that sort of thing. So what um, you had happen in the panic of 1907 is a whole bunch of Americans, okay, ran to the banks. That's where you get the phrase, a bank run, a run on the banks. They actually walked really fast or ran to the banks and said to the banks, we want our money. And the banks were like, uh, we don't have it, okay? We don't have it. And so what some banks do is they close the doors. Yes. And then you see people standing outside the bank, pounding on the doors and yelling and freaking out and all that other sort of thing. And so after this, the government did what it does, which it said, somebody ought to look into that. <laughs> yes, right? And figure out how we can not have that happen again. And... Thus is born the National Monetary Commission, also known as the Aldrich Commission. Yep, named for the chair, uh, one Nelson Aldrich, who was a senator, okay. Um, and, and Nia, uh, do you want to uh, discuss the uh, membership of the Aldrich Committee? So we had Senator Nelson Aldrich, um, uh, Republican from Rhode Island. Yep. And then we had Representative Edward Vreeland, um, a Republican from New York. And by the way, uh, just as a side note, if you've heard of them, you've heard of them because of the Aldrich Vreeland, Vreeland Act of 1908, which was, they sort of came up with a way to temporarily give money to people um, through promissory notes sort of things. And uh, it didn't last very long, but that's where you might've heard the names. And then, and then this is what I love. It's really hard to find the actual names of the membership yes. because there's not really much in the way of about this commission. There are some things we'll get to in a minute that are really cool about this commission, but one of the things that's really hard to find are the names of the members. I couldn't find them. 
There were eight senators appointed by Vice President Charles Fairbanks, um, four Republican and three Democrat. And there were eight representatives chosen by Speaker of the House Joseph Cannon, five Republican and three Democrat. So you see that it's heavily Republican. In which, by the way, makes sense because at that time, the Republican Party dominated uh, national politics in the United States in the early 1900s. The majority party, okay, um, at, at this point in our country's history was the Republican Party, okay? And by the way, the Republican Party back then um, was uh, associated with, okay, representing banking interests, right? Okay, the Republicans were just like, you know, hey, if we don't solve this, okay, um, this might hurt us in future elections. Spoiler. I, it, <laughs> yeah, right? Okay. Spoiler alert. Okay, and, and, and again, I tell my students all the time, yes, the government wants to solve public policy problems, but remember, elected officials want to do what in the future? Get elected some more. Get, yeah, they want to you know, win re-election, right? <laughs> okay. So if they do they're, a calculus, they're pretty open about what they want. Yeah. Okay. And if they do a calculus, it's like, hey, if we don't do something about this, this is going to be, you know, on our backs in future elections. Okay. Um, yeah, they're going to do something about it. Right. They're going to do. They're going to attempt to do something about it. Right. So they also had a secretary and a special assistant. Their secretary was Arthur Shelton, and their special assistant was Piot Andrew. Yeah, that's not a first name that you see very much these days um, uh, in the United States. No, Piot, but I okay? like it. P-I-A-T-T. -T. Yes, um, yeah. So as you can tell, it's a relatively small group yeah. of people, right? Yeah. Um, uh, 22 and, and, people and by, total. And by the way, listeners, uh, if you've been uh, listening to our series about commissions, okay, the larger the commission, the less likely it is to actually do meaningful work. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it, it's just a rule of thumb in <laughs> government, okay? If you make a, a committee or a commission too large, it's almost impossible to get consensus. Right? Which makes sense, right? That's just a lot yes. of voices that you have to compromise with. What's great about this commission is, boy, did they have some output. Oh my they, goodness, yes. They yes. had 30 reports, folks, and you can read them all. The one of the great things about the the federal government, uh, excuse me, the federal bank system is that the different federal banks around the nation gather documents and keep historical documents and bless the St. Louis Fed for they gathered all 30 of these reports in one spot. Well, in, so in this also what I oh sorry. But this also reflects something else that was going on in the country at the turn of the 20th century. The progressive movement, okay, was a huge believer, okay, that you could study an issue, find solutions, okay, and that you should issue reports, okay? Right. You should issue reports. Okay? Transparency. Yes, right? Because, you know, we you know, we put together a whole bunch of experts, okay, and of course, they're <laughs> going to go ahead and want to tell us their expert recommendations. You know, this stuff to where, you know, we hope we, you know, we can cover, we can, op, you know, obf uh, ob obfuscate, okay, etc. Okay, 
that didn't happen back then. I mean, when they had commissions, they wrote reports and they're <laughs> fascinating, fascinating reads if you know if you're into that kind of stuff, right? Oh, the the best thing, uh, Augie and I would want to be on this commission. Oh yes. Because they went to Europe. They that what they did was they tried to figure out if there was a better way to do banking than what was being done in the United States at the time. So they went all over Europe. So when you go to those reports, there's like the banking of Italy and the banking of, you know, the various countries. And so uh, think about in 1907, 1908, they're not flying. They're taking steamships, right? Yes. And so it's an adventure to go there, right? They're taking a steamship. It's going to take a little while. All this was done in three years. They managed to do a lot of these reports in a really short period of time, and they're fascinating to read. They're also, um, for the historians in the crowd, they're a really good snapshot of Europe's banking system at the turn of the century. And that's not really encapsulated in many places, but it's it's encapsulated in these in this series of reports. So I can't speak highly enough about the series of reports. If you have some time and you, you have a chance to read them, they're oh, yeah. really and, and, interesting. And, and if and if you like comparative politics or comparative history, right? Okay, the the reports are fascinating, right? Because I mean, they were honestly trying to figure out if there was a better way to do banking in a democracy with a capitalist economy than what was going on in the United States. Because as Nia pointed out, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, the country basically went from boom to bust in the economy pretty much every decade, okay? I mean, and in, in, in an economist will tell you this, right? You know, you can't keep on going from those wild extremes. Right. Okay. Um, you, you know, ideally you have, okay, consistent, okay, uh, growth, okay, with very few down periods. Okay. You know, that's, you know, that's the sweet spot in regards to a capitalist economy. So how could banking... I mean, and that, that was the overarching question for the Aldridge Commission. How can banking, okay, mitigate these boom and bust periods? And Nia, what was their ultimate recommendation? <laughs> um, ultimately, it led to the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. Yes. Which created the Federal Reserve System. Now, yes. we often talk about conspiracy theories as part of our commission stuff um we 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 hat tip and salute you people who think that the federal reserve is somehow a conspiracy of what is it the bilderberg group and the and the rothschilds and to control american banking and yeah I can't understand that conspiracy, that particular conspiracy theory, because it's too convoluted for me. Yeah, I mean the the, the 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 overarching conspiracy theory that arose was that the Federal Reserve Act, okay, was a law passed by Congress to basically benefit, okay, the 
robber barons, okay, the 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 the, the capitalists who drove the industrial revolution in the United States. Oh, so at that time it would have been the Rockefellers and the yes, Mellons right? and the okay, yeah, okay. Um, and, and, and if you subscribe to that theory, there's probably very little Nia that you and I could say, okay, <laughs> that will that will bump you off that block, right? right. Okay. Um, now let's be very clear. The Federal Reserve System was designed to go ahead and mitigate, okay, economic booms and busts. Right. Okay. Because it's basically a system of regional banks, okay, that are designed to control the supply of money in the United States. Okay. I mean, that's the basic purpose of the Federal Reserve System, right? Hence why you get mints around the nation and you get Federal Reserves around the nation, like the aforementioned St. Louis, who we love because they're they are hugely into documenting all sorts of things. Um, that's historically been one of the best things about the St. Louis, although there are lots of reserve documents out there. And the reserve system encourages that. Like, for instance, the one of these, um, one of the reports that came out of this is about the banking laws of all the states. It's really important that the reserve system keep those historically so that we know what we've tried before and what didn't work right like so there's there's a lot of that sort of thing but but the the federal reserve act um uh, i think that didn't um woodrow wilson so it affected the way woodrow wilson approached the 1912 presidential race right because people kind of wigged out when they were when they were when there was this discussion of a centralized bank yeah, because, because people the, didn't want a centralized bank. Because this went ahead and tapped into that long-standing dispute that I mentioned at the start of this podcast episode. The Democratic right. Party uh, tended to represent um, southern and rural states that did a lot of farming. Historically, farmers have had love-hate relationship with banks because farmers typically need to borrow a whole bunch of money for equipment, okay, um, and for planting. And then it's, it's a big bet, right? Right. Okay, will the, the, the growing season, season and the harvest seasons, okay, produce enough yield, okay, with the prices being high enough so that farmers can pay off their loans? And if that does not happen, who then takes ownership of the farm and the equipment? Banks. Bank. Right. Okay. So in those parts of the country, bankers have not always been okay. Welcomed. Most, you know, warmly most, welcomed. Yeah, warmly welcomed, right? And again, Woodrow Wilson was a Democrat. Okay. And for listeners today who are, you know, um, uh, um, uh, who are aware of you know, where the support for the Democratic and Republican parties, um, the 21st century versions of those parties, that's been kind of sort of flipped, right? Okay, most support for Democratic Party, for the Democratic Party today are in the large cities on the coast, right? Whereas a lot of the support for the Republican Party is now in the deep south, 
and rural America, right? <laughs> so it's been flipped. But in the 1912 presidential race, Woodrow Wilson, okay, a Democrat, okay, uh, was very responsive to those parts of the Democratic Party who are like, oh, this looks this looks like a central banking system. And we don't like banks. We don't right. like bankers, right? And we certainly don't want someone centralized far from us with people who don't know us. Like a huge amount of relationships with farmers and banks is personal. Yes. They know each other. There, There's a trust sort of there, um, although it eroded, uh, especially as you get into the Great Depression, right? It eroded because banks had to do what banks had to do. Well, I mean, think, possess you know, think, things, but... think if you were a farmer in early 20th century America, right? The nation's economy had already begun to shift from agriculture to industrialization. Right. Okay. Forces outside of your control are basically, we're basically saying to farmers across the country, you're no longer as important. Right. It, up until then, I think what is something, some amazing number before the Industrial Revolution, like 96% of people worked on farms, right? Yes. Because the, the few that didn't were, were special trades. They were blacksmiths, yes. they were, you know, bakers, they were, and then you get industrialization and more and more people leave the farm and go to work in cities um, and go to work in an industry. And so less and less now, it's almost entirely reversed. I think four or 5% of people in, in the United States work in agriculture. That's right. Everybody else works in something else. So again, the flip, you're seeing all kinds of uh, sort of reversals from the turn of the century. Um, so Woodrow Wilson used, okay, um, you know, the, the various proposals that came from the Eldridge Commission um, as a wedge issue um, in a number of states. And it okay? won. And he won, right? And he won. I mean, that's why Wilson's president at that point. Okay. And, and again, you know, I, I, I remind my students, the Democratic Party of the early 20th century was not Okay, the Progressive Party. The Progressive Party in the early 20th century was the Republican Party. It was the Republican Party led by politicians like Theodore Roosevelt, John Dewey, okay, who were like, okay, um, government, okay, can study an issue and regulate that behavior that creates problems in the economy. <laughs> Right. And and now if you said to Mitch McConnell, I'm going to need you to do that, he would have to lay down and put a cold compress on his forehead. Oh, yeah, that's not the current. Yeah, I mean, that's they, not they, the current re Republican uh, yeah, I position. Mean, they, we, we have a flip, right? I right. mean, it's flipped, right? Um, so can we move on to one of my favorites? Oh, yes. <laughs> so, okay. So uh, this, sorry, I'm going to treat, we're going to treat these two episodes in the way that often history is taught in American government, which is from war to war to war. Um, so I'm going to pretend that nothing happened in the banking system between 1908 and 1929. That's not completely accurate, but the shifts were not horrific. And then you get the Wall Street crash of 1929. 
right? That is the famous crash that everybody has heard of, the start of the Great Depression. That's, and it actually, I think people think it happened on one day. It didn't. It happened over the course of what, like six or eight weeks that it, because it dipped and then recovered and then dipped harder and then recovered and then, um, and then couldn't recover. And for, and this is the totally thin, basic, um, what happened with the crash was, People got into stocks. Regular humans got into stocks. Stocks stopped being a wealthy people thing and started being, being a regular person thing, but people bought them on margin, what's called on margin, which is I only have to put 10% down in order to get this stock, right? So, um, or however much percentage down, I think 10% was common, but there may have been other percentages that people used. But when the stocks started to, um, when people started to, when the stock market started to fail, people were asked to repay those loans, which were essentially loans, right? I put 10% down and the stockbroker loans me 90% of the money to buy the piece of stock. Let's say the stock is a dollar. I put down a dime. He puts down 90 cents. He's loaning that 90 cents to me so that I can buy that piece of stock and then sell it or hold on to it or whatever. Well, and that's, when and those that's started fine. to come due, right. Okay, and that's fine if the value of the stock continues to increase. Right. Okay, but as part of the stock market crash, as stocks were then being sold for lower prices, you had a bunch of, as you pointed out, uh, Nia, average Americans, okay, who's, you know, who, you know, who had taken out a loan to buy stocks, but the value of the stocks had decreased. So not only were they losing money because the value of the stocks had decreased, okay, you had stockbrokers who were like, but you owe me next month, okay, a payment on the loan that I extended you to buy that stock that's now, in some cases, worthless. Right. Okay. I mean, and by the way, listeners, I want you to remember this because it's part of what happened with the 2007 to 2009 recession. A whole bunch of Americans, okay, took out loans to buy houses, okay, as the value of their homes decreased, they still owed what to the banks? The original amount. The original amount. And what that's called is being upside down. Yeah, or underwater. Or okay? underwater. Because, yeah, because you still owe the bank for the loan you took out right. for a piece of property that now is not worth as much. And the we'll get to that one because that one's also another favorite. But we'll get to that one in a little bit. But the, the or maybe, no, probably next episode. But the... Um, the Wall Street problem, people were upside down with their loans to their stockbrokers. Stockbrokers were calling in all those loans, meaning you have to pay me all of it. And if you don't pay me all of it, I'm going to charge you extra. And so people ended up losing a huge amount of money. Now, that would be fine if they were rich, but they were normal folk who were just buying and selling because it was exciting and it was, and it was open to them for the first time in history, they could do that. They could, normal people could get in and try to try their luck in the stock market. 
part of the problem was too that a lot of professionals got out they got out the summer before the stock market crash. Um, you have Kennedy, for instance, was one of those folks. But lots of folks got out and sold because they could see that the market was heating up and it was heating up too much. That stocks, when they go, they suddenly zoom up really high, that's dangerous. Because there's only one place for that to eventually go and it's down. Um, but people thought that it would keep making money forever. You're talking about the roaring 20s, right? Where people are living the great Gatsby life and then all of a sudden boom and yes. and the the boom was horrible I mean you went from way way high to absolute ground bottom floor and so um so you get this so you get what's called the Pecora investigation and that is basically um, to invent, uh, so uh, it's a little convoluted, but the in on March second, nineteen thirty-two, Senate Resolution eighty-four passed, authorizing the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking and Currency to investigate quote practices with respect to the buying and borrowing and lending of stocks and securities. Okay, so that's a that's a an actual Senate. Um, committee. committee. It's not an extra committee. It, a lot of our commissions or committees have been outside or they've been put together as a as a joint sort of thing. This was just the committee from the Senate. Yeah, I mean, a lot of our commissions are created uh, by presidents. Um, they don't exist as part of the um, formal executive branch or legislative branch. Okay, the Pecora investigation, okay, was part of a congressional committee. Okay. And, and the membership shows that, which, yes. was, which is cool because the membership, the chair changes. And the reason he changes is because there's an election, right? Because it's yeah, the Senate. Yeah, because, <laughs> because before the 1932 presidential election, the chair of the committee okay, was uh, uh, Pete Norback, okay? Um, and that's when, you know, the Republicans had an overwhelming majority in both houses of Congress. The 1932 uh, election, not only did FDR, a Democrat, win the presidency, okay, but the Democratic Party, in one of the biggest realigning elections in our country's history, took control of both houses of Congress. So the next year, the chair of the committee was Duncan Fletcher, okay, um, and, uh, uh, and, and, and if you look at the committee membership, okay, it looks like any other congressional committee. Right. It had a smattering of Republicans and it had a smattering of Democrats. Yeah, it's half and half, but the leadership changes because of the election. Yeah, and, and what was really fascinating for both me and I, okay, <laughs> um, is Every congressional committee, and, and, and when I teach this in intro to US government, my students are like, each committee has a staff? And I'm like, yeah. They said, what, you actually think that members of Congress, okay? <laughs> Do stuff? <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, most members of Congress, okay, are supposed to be like in attendance at four different committees at the same time. Right. In fairness okay? to them, they are called on to do a lot, well, which is why they have staff. a staff. So it's the committee staff, 
Right. Okay, and in this case, the Committee on Banking and Currency, okay, had a staff, okay? Um, and their last chief counsel was this individual by the name of, and he's one of our all-time favorite, okay, <laughs> um, government officials, okay? And he only served for a brief period of time, but the dude's name was Ferdinand Pecora, and that's the reason why this becomes known as the Pecora investigation. Because Which is, ne I'm sorry. Neo, okay, who was Ferdinand Pecora, and why is he known? Okay, by you know congressional historians. Well, okay. So the thing is, when c committees have councils. Yes. And the committee, they have a lawyer, basically, who sits yes. in the committee and says, y'all can't do that. That's illegal. <laughs> Except, I'm sure, without the Southern accent. But, well, in some cases, probably. This committee plowed through four. Different Ferdinand councils. Decora was the fourth council. So one could argue, let's be fair. Oh, hey, no, 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 no. Let, let's be very clear. The first three, okay, had very little desire to figure out why the stock market crash happened right. okay and why it had such an oversized impact on the nation's economy right okay? and it, because and again remember you know after we had the aldridge commission the hope was if we have a sound banking system okay we're happen. not going we're not going to get these kind of booms and busts anymore in the us economic you know, cycle, right? Right. But then all of a sudden, you know, you know, less than 20 years later, we have the Great Depression, right? Right. Not How just a, a not just a little panic, but like a world shattering. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just here, you know, in the States. This was worldwide. Right. Right. The Great Depression was worldwide. We dragged okay. everybody down with us when we went. Okay. It, 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 Sound the, familiar? In the first three councils, okay had no stomach, no interest, okay, at least one of them from what I read, okay, seemed to be the tool of actually the stock market. I don't know how he, how, you know, how the, 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 the fox got into the hen house, but nevertheless, he was there, okay, but Pecora was different. Well, and the thing is, the others didn't really want to subpoena people. They didn't really want to dig in. Um, and one could argue that maybe the committee didn't want to do that necessarily. I mean, also think about Congress and how Congress has a relationship with Wall Street. That that was true then too as well, and there was a lot of complication. But Pecora basically, I think, went to the to the president and said. I want to be able to subpoena people. I want to figure this out. And because you have FDR, he's like, heck yeah, you need to figure this out because I don't want this happening again on my watch. And then you get a change in the committee membership and who was chair. Okay. Right. And, 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 and again, uh, you know, many Americans don't understand this. Congress, congressional committees have subpoena power. Okay. Right. I mean, because how else are you going to get people to testify who may not want to go ahead and say, well, this is the reason why, and I actually contributed to this. Exactly. Right? Who'd he subpoena, Augie? He you... <laughs> this is beautiful. Okay. Uh, this he... is Pecora with some 
as we would say, crudely stones. Yes. Okay. Some serious chutzpah. He interviewed the president of the New York Stock Exchange, uh, Richard Whitney. Um, he intervie uh, interviewed the chairman of uh, 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 the, the, the National City Bank, uh, which, used to, uh, which we now call Citibank. Okay. Um, this was unheard of. Yeah. Right? He you, you don't call these people to testify, right? You don't. Charles Mitchell, who is the ch chair of the National City Bank, he basically made Charles Mitchell cry. And then Charles Mitchell had to resign like yes. three or four days after his testimony, because Mitchell Mitchell basically said, uh, uh, I uh, 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 like that's how he answered. When Pecora said, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this decision? Because Pecora had this phenomenal memory. Pecora was great at financial shenanigans. And he was one of those lawyers who could remember lots of detailed um, exchanges within the bank. And he asked about them. And those guys had to answer. I think that's awesome because he yeah, was not he having it. He wanted to know what, what, what the what was. Yeah, I mean, Pecora basically went ahead and exposed listeners, okay, um, as to how and why the uh, uh, the Roaring Twenties, okay, was unsustainable. Right. It was unsustainable, right? Right. He exposed the fact that the New York Stock uh, 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 Stock Exchange, okay, knew that a whole bunch of these trades. Okay, were unsustainable. Right. Um, there were no regulations in place. Okay. Um, you had stock brokers who basically were counting on the fact that you had a whole bunch of Americans who didn't know how the stock market actually worked. Okay. And were taking their money. And then, as Nia pointed out, a whole bunch of them got out before the stock market crashed. So that was just the stock market. Then he went ahead and exposed uh, with, uh, with the big banks, almost all of which were headquartered in New York, right. okay? How the big banks, okay, knew that Americans were borrowing money with very little chance to pay it back, okay? That they went ahead and made all these kinds of bad loans, but they insulated themselves, okay, from it, right? And we're counting on the federal government to actually do, do what the federal government actually did when the stock market crashed and there was yet another run on the banks in the early 1930s. The banks counted on the federal government closing the banks. Right. Closing the banks. They counted on it. And Pecora went ahead and exposed this. Okay. In economic terms, that's known as a moral hazard. You engage in bad behavior, but you don't correct your bad behavior because you know somebody's going to go ahead and bail you out. Okay. And I want you guys to remember this because in the next podcast episode, when we look at the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009, that's actually one of the criticisms of the two part government bailout. The first part by the Bush 43 administration the second bailout by the Obama administration. That's actually one of the criticisms, right? Right. It, uh, there's so much about that one. Okay, that, but, 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 but. Preview Cora, on that. Okay, but Cora, okay, it was fascinating, right? 
Because again, you know, me and I do research before these podcast episodes. And I know, you know, some listeners are like, really, you guys do research? Because it doesn't seem like you guys do research. But no, we actually do, right? And what was fascinating was Pakora, okay, was just like, I mean, he had this phenomenal memory, okay? Um, he used the subpoena power, right? And he's by on the, way, the job for a year. He's on the job for a year. And by the way, oh, only, okay, there were members of Congress on this committee, okay, who were vehemently opposed to him subpoenaing these individuals. Oh, they were yeah. just like, you just don't do that. And he was just like, how are we going to figure out what actually went wrong and how do we correct it unless we get the major players to testify under oath, okay, how their industries actually did stuff. Pecora sets the standard. Yes. He sets the standard for future commissions when he sort of is like a bulldog. He's just... He, we're going to keep asking the question until somebody dang well answers it because this you know because we have enormous loss of asset we have enormous loss of life we have enormous loss of i mean like it's just horrific what happens in the in the crash and and the aftermath and he's like this this can't be allowed to continue um and i hate to leave it there but whoa whoa, gonna, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, 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 wait. Are we going to do the recommendations this time or are we going to hold them for next time? No, I I think we need to uh, just focus one entire episode on the Great Recession of 2007 and 2009. Okay. Okay. All right. So to to conclude this particular episode, Nia, okay, the final report of the PCORA investigation was 400 pages, right? Okay. Um, Didn't make uh, any official recommendations. Right. But his work was so thorough that it ends up becoming the basis, okay, of one of the, one of the two most important um, New Deal pieces of legislation, okay, in our country's history. Uh, first is the Glass-Steagall Act, okay, which restructured the banking system, okay, and you might be like, well, wait a minute here, isn't that what the Aldrich Commission did? Well, Glass-Steagall went ahead and separated commercial banks from investment banks. And and this is the reason why I wanted to cover it in this particular episode. Because listeners, I want you to remember that distinction. Because one of the things Pecora found out was commercial banks, okay, needed to be separate from investment banks. Investment banks, their job is to go ahead and invest capital, okay, into, if you will, economic initiatives, economic entrepreneurship. But that is risky behavior. Right. Okay, that's risky behavior. And needs to be separated from From mom and pop's um, savings in the bank, which is risky, but not nearly as risky. Nearly as risky, right? Commercial banks need to be separate from investment banks. Commercial banks... Okay, to give you a metaphor, commercial banks are kind of sort of like the, 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 the backbone, okay, of the U.S. economic system, right? Right. People are going to want to borrow money, for instance, to buy a car, right? 
they go that, to a credit union or a bank, bank and there's right? a normal procedure that you go through and it's very bland and it's not really exciting but it's yeah, right you know you know if i want to put a new roof on my house and i don't have the money i can go to my bank and take out a small loan a small personal loan right okay put that new roof on and in five years i can pay it off right okay that's the backbone of a capitalist economic system, right? And why does it work? Because of the FDIC. Yes. Which is okay. part of the Glass-Siegel. And the FDIC guarantees, so if I put my $50, my aforementioned $50 a month into the bank, the FDIC now guarantees me that up to $250,000 I will have. The government will make sure that my first $250,000 is protected if there's another crash. So that gives the bank a chance to loan my money to Augie to put on his new roof. That's right. Right, because both of us are safely guaranteed. And that means money is flowing through the economy. Right. Me is being encouraged to save, okay, and feel confident that if she puts money in a savings account in her bank, that if she goes to take it out, it will be there. Right. It encourages me to go ahead and, you know, to, you know, buy, you know, borrow that money to put a roof on, which means I'm hiring contractors, okay? And buying materials, exactly. Okay. But investment banks, okay, are designed to take risks, right? Right. We're, We're going to invest in the internet in the 1990s. It might be fabulous. Then again, it could crash and burn. Right. Okay. But the economic system won't go down with it. Okay. If some of those investments don't pay off. Right. Right. Investment banks don't pay your. What happens through investment banks isn't how small businesses pay their employees, pay their employees through banking, through regular banking. Yes. And when you mix those things, you endanger people's employment, you endanger people's small businesses and their ability to do small business loans that keep small businesses going. Yeah, it's a, so separating those two things was huge. But then the second law, okay, is not only important substantively, it was important symbolically. Because the 1934 Securities Exchange Act, okay, the Fletcher-Rayburn bill, okay, actually created regulations for the stock market. I mean, think about how in, you know, the United States stock market around the world is the symbol of capitalism. Right. For the first time in our country's history, the stock market was going to be regulated. It created the Securities and Exchange Commission, an independent regulatory commission that sets up rules for the stock market. Now, mind you, I understand listeners, okay? Um, There have been critiques about the Securities and Exchange Commission, okay, for not being aggressive enough in regulating uh, the stock market, okay? For, you know, you listeners who are supporters of uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, okay? He rails about that, uh, the the SEC on a regular basis. I get that. Okay, but this was huge. And it all flowed from the PCOR investigation 
because he went ahead and exposed the fact that it was basically the Wild West, okay, during the 1920s. Exactly, exactly. And while Bernie might complain, Bernie, like I know him, while Senator (laughs) Sanders might complain about the SEC, the SEC existing is enormous. Yes. The idea that you can tell the titans of Wall Street what they can and can't do, that's a totally new concept that we get in 1934. That's, until then, rich men could do whatever they wanted to do like they there was no there was no abrogation of their power yes and this was the first time yeah they could do insider trading oh which they did all the time they did a lot of things where they they messed they could lie they could lie to potential investors right okay uh, and then use the legal system to go ahead and get you know, margin calls repaid, okay? And publicly traded companies didn't have to give you any kind of report about what they were doing or how much money they were making or where they were working. None of that. They didn't have to do any of that. Or if they issued a report, it could be chock full of lies, okay? And there was no legal repercussions, right? Right. And now in 1934, you get this commission saying, no, there's got to be a report for every publicly traded um, uh, stock for every publicly traded company, there's got to be a report. It's got to be accurate. We will investigate to make sure it's accurate, but there has to be a level of transparency, which did not exist until 1934. And that is because of Ferdinand Pecora, who I just, and I love the fact that it is named for him and not for the chair of the commission, because um, I don't know. I mean, Norbeck, the Norbeck commission might sound cool but the pecora investigation and by the way it's not a commission because it was not a commission it was committee and so he was the the council um so yay exciting and we're uh we're up to the 1950s and we will talk about that in our next episode um but if you read nothing else reading um about pecora he's just a fascinating figure in history uh, in, I mean, yes. he, had, he was only there for a year and he made this enormous change to, uh, to the banking system that has carried through to today. Yeah. Yep. Good stuff. Yeah. Yep. Thanks, Augie. <laughs> Thank you, Neil. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.